I thought I would start with that bit of music. That's uh, by the uh, New Zealand singer-songwriteress Brooke Frazier, uh, who's a Christian artist, and this is her song called C.S. Lewis' Song. And uh, you might not have arrived at the beginning. You can see very clearly at the beginning, taking her inspiration from uh, an argument that C.S. Lewis uh, gave that's come to be known as the argument from desire, which is uh, an argument uh, for... Uh, the possibility of knowing God and therefore of the existence of God that we'll cover a little bit later on. And this is, uh, on the other side of the screen here, this is the front cover of my book of this uh, title, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists, uh, which is being published by Paternoster Press and coming out uh, hopefully in about February of this uh, coming year. So this is a bit of a trail of some of the content uh, of that book. There's uh, one of the few colour pictures you can find of uh, C.S. Lewis and uh, his uh, appearance on the front of Time uh, magazine. He is, of course, uh, a very influential uh, Christian thinker, both in the areas of the imagination. Uh, One only has to mention his Chronicles of Narnia, uh, still very popular, um, particularly through the recent uh, series of films that they've been making based on those books but also in the area of uh, Christian apologetics uh, and philosophy, and of course in his professional work as a uh, literary uh, critic, uh, a um, a historian of ancient literature, and so on. He held the first uh, chair of uh, medieval literature at uh, Cambridge University, um, having moved there from a a long time being at Oxford. So here's... uh, Lewis sitting very sort of uncle-like in his chair with a book about to read you the Chronicles of Narnia and I give a plug for uh, Michael Ward's uh, book The Narnia Code uh, which only recently unearthed an entire uh, new level of uh, meaning and complexity uh, within uh, the Chronicles of Narnia um, all to do with Lewis's knowledge of the medieval uh, beliefs about the uh, the, the symbology connected to the different planets within medieval astrology and how he uses that symbolism as a backbone for each of the books in the Chronicles. It's a fascinating uh, read. So Lewis is a scholar who still continues to surprise us, um, even today, even after so many years of him being uh, a popular and influential uh, voice. Here's just uh, a few of his... Uh, Uh, more uh, apologetical and uh, philosophical works uh, continue, of course, to be republished and republished and republished. I'd like to just play you a a quick excerpt from one of the few uh, surviving uh, reels of Lewis's BBC talks during the war, uh, which later came to be written up as the book Mere Christianity. Uh, just to give you a sense of, although the guy came from Northern Ireland, here he is on the BBC with a very plummy, uh, kind of English-received English uh, kind of voice, uh, just to give you uh, a little snatch of the sense of uh, what it was like to uh, hear this guy teach. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. And that this process goes on very far inside. One's most private wishes, one's point of view, 
are the things that have to be changed. That's why unbelievers complain that Christianity is a very selfish religion. Isn't it very selfish, even more than they say, to be always bothering about the inside of your own self, instead of thinking of humanity? Now, what would an NCO say to a soldier who had a dirty rifle and when told to clean it, replied, but Sergeant, isn't it very selfish, even more, to be always bothering about the inside of your own life, instead of thinking of the United Nations? Well, we didn't bother about what the NCO would actually say. You see the point? So you can see there a good example of, of Lewis uh, expounding what it is to be converted, the changes uh, that one might experience, uh, thinking of an objection that someone uh, might make, probably an objection he's heard, uh, and giving a response to that objection um, that uses uh, humour, that uses an, an illustration, um, that uses a situation that a lot of people at the time would have recently been through in army training. Um, and so here is Lewis talking theology, doing apologetics, um, using uh, illustration and humour and imagination uh, all things that Lewis uh, brings uh, to the table in his uh, writings. And yet, this is the same man who was once described by a school friend of his as a foul-mouthed and riotously amusing atheist. Although he was brought up within a Christian home, uh, when Lewis went off to boarding school, he very soon lost his childhood faith. You get some sense of Lewis's feelings about religion at that age from this description uh, from his uh, sort of semi-autobiographical um, retelling of the Pilgrim's Progress story. He calls the Pilgrim's Regress, uh, a sort of uh, fantasy autobiography, as it were, um, that bears reading alongside his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And the, the kind of feelings that one might have about what he saw as very hypocritical uh, Christian faith uh, that he saw in the society uh, around him and at the boarding schools that he was sent to uh, in England. And it's a good bit of writing as well. So, um, the steward, who of course here stands for the priest, uh, then took down from a peg a big card with small print all over it and said... Here is a list of all the things the landlord says that you must not do. You'd better look at it. So John took the card, but half of the rules seemed to forbid things that he'd never heard of. And the other half forbade things that he was doing every day and could not imagine not doing. And the number of rules was so enormous that he felt he could never remember them all. I hope, said the steward, that you have not already broken any of the rules. John's heart began to thump and his eyes bulged more and more and he was at his wit's end when the steward took his mask off and looked at John with his real face and said, Better tell a lie, old chap. Better tell a lie. Easiest for all concerned. And popped the mask on his face all in a flash. John gulped and said quickly, Oh, no, sir. 
That's just as well, said the steward through the mask. Because, you know, if you do break any of them and the landlord got to know of it, well, he'd take you and and shut you up forever and ever in a black hole full of snakes and scorpions as large as lobsters. Forever and ever. And besides that, he is such a kind, good man, so very, very kind, that I'm sure you would never want to displease him. Lewis is almost a better satirist of uh, religion than any of today's new atheists. In a letter to his friend Arthur Greaves in 1916, Lewis said this, I believe in no religion. There's absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. All religions are merely man's own invention. Christ as much as Loki. And the problem of evil clearly weighed heavily with Lewis, the atheist. He says that several years before reading the ancient uh, writer Lucretius, I felt the force of his argument, and it's surely the strongest of them all for atheism. Uh, Lucretius says, had God designed the world, it would not be a world so fragile and faulty as we see. And so little by little, with fluctuations which I cannot now trace, I became an apostate, dropping my faith with no sense of loss, but with a great sense of relief, he talks about. Indeed, Lewis said, uh, I never sank so low as to pray in the trenches of World War I. That quote there from in, over that scene was uh, Lewis's own words describing his experiences in the war uh, from Surprised by Joy. Um, here's an anecdote from his uh, uh, adopted son, Douglas Gresham, in his book Jack's Life. Lewis uh, spent his 19th birthday in the... Um, front trenches of World War One, and then he was wounded in the Battle of Arras when the troops were advancing before a so-called creeping barrage, where your side sends uh, artillery shells over your own side's troops and advances those to hide the advance of the troops from the enemy and to make sure the enemy's keeping their heads down when your troops get there, hopefully, if it all works out. This time it didn't work out. The barrage started creeping in the wrong direction. Gresham recalls, as they advanced with bayonets at the ready, the barrage stopped advancing and began to come back towards them. Soon Jack, and this means Lewis here, adopted the name Jack at a very early age and all of his friends knew him as Jack. Uh, Jack and his men were being bombarded by their own artillery from far behind them and to his helpless fury Jack watched his men being blown to pieces in the constant roar of their own artillery support suddenly Jack saw a blinding light everything went completely silent and then the ground came up slowly and hit him in the face Jack had been hit by the concussion and shrapnel from a British shell and his trusted sergeant had been between Jack and the shell, when it exploded, and was blown to bits. So, Lewis's objections to religion 
you can see being both founded in his psychological experience with religion in the Fritchist culture he came from, in the hypocrisy of the Christian culture in the boarding schools that he went to, and in not merely a philosophical abstract grappling with the problem of pain, but with the real lived experience of the horrors of the trench warfare of World War I. After the war, of course, he went back to Oxford and was studying uh, greats, including, therefore, philosophy and so on. Uh, he went back to Oxford as a, an atheist, a materialist. But he was kind of the generation before the rise of so-called logical positivism, indeed, I have a quote over here from Lewis who talks at one point about those plaguey philosophers we call the logical positivists. Um, prime amongst whom in, in Britain was uh, A.J. Eyre here, who in 1936 published his book Language, Truth and Logic. Now the revolutionary thing about the positivists was their whole engagement was on the level of um, how do we tell when a a claim uh, uh, that someone makes, a truth claim that people make, uh, something people seem to be saying, is actually even meaningful. In order to be true or false, a claim has to actually have a, some kind of meaning. I have to, it has to mean something. And if it means something, then you can ask, well, is it true or false? Um, but the logical positivists were very concerned with this whole question of, well, what, when is, is it that language has meaning. And they came up with some criteria that they said would tell us when language has meaning. And they said basically this, language means things if it's either true by definition, so claims like um, you will never meet a married bachelor, that's meaningful because it's just true by definition of course you could never meet someone who is married and who's a bachelor you will never stub your toe against a square circle of course not that's just true by definition 2 plus 2 equals 4 well yeah that's true by definition so that's meaningful but they said either true by definition or at least in principle, is open to some sort of empirical investigation. You could check it out using your five senses, or your five senses extended by the instrumentation of science and so on. So if I make a claim like um, the dark side of the moon is made of cheese, okay, that might be a very silly thing to claim, but it's nonetheless meaningful because, at least in principle, were you to find yourself on the dark side of the moon, you could start trying to eat the moon and discover whether or not it really was made of cheese. Okay? It's empirically investigatable. And in this instance, now that we have indeed been to the dark side of the moon and had a good look at it and so on, uh, we know it's not made of cheese. So they have this rule about when is language meaningful? only when it's true by definition, or at least in principle, you could check it out using empirical methods. The consequence of this rule 
was huge for the discipline of philosophy because it meant that talking about moral values, for example, was literally meaningless. To say you should not torture small children for fun, it's not that it's a false claim, it's that it's a meaningless claim. It's not true by definition. There's nothing you could do to test it experimentally. No amount of observing the world will will show the wrongness of the action. And so, for the logical positivists, talk about ethics and right and wrong and so on is is just meaningless. At best, it's just a sort of inculcate expression of human emotion. Like if you were to, uh, you know, walk on my foot... Uh, as we're all queuing up for the coffee and it's all crowded and you step on my foot and I kind of go, oh, ow! I don't, I'm not really meaning, I'm not intending to say that. I'm, I'm not making a claim. Uh, you've just elicited a response from me. Maybe uh, torturing small children for, fu- for fun is wrong is at best on a par with that sort of incohate response you've just elicited from me. But it's, it's not something that could be either true or false. Nor, indeed, could any talk about God, according to the logical positivists. Well, Lewis was not of this kind of school of thought, as I've indicated. And indeed, Lewis had become a Christian a few years before A.J.R. published his book. But, of course, that kind of thought... That kind of atmosphere in academia was there uh, in the early 20th century. And I find in a a later paper of Lewis's called The Language of Religion, what I think is probably a unique argument against this whole logical positivist way of thinking. Uh, I mean, it it died a death very quickly um, for a number of reasons. It came under a barrage of criticism. But I think Lewis has a criticism and that I haven't seen elsewhere. He argues in this paper that religious sayings are significant, or we could say meaningful, if you meet them with a certain goodwill or readiness to find meaning there. And he suggests that while some things said by religious people can't be treated exactly as we treat scientific empirically discoverable statements, this isn't because they're statements of some kind of special language, some sort of language unto ourselves that's nothing to do with anything else, it would be true to say that the scientific statements are the special language. He says scientific and poetic language are two different artificial perfections of ordinary language. We start out with our ordinary language, our ordinary discourse, and the exception to this rules are to be found in the nature of poetic language on the one hand and scientific type language on the other. It says this, It seems to me to be a mistake to think that our experience in general can be communicated by precise and literal language, that is the language of empirical sciences, and that there's a special class of experience, say emotions or religious experiences, which cannot, which cannot be thus communicated. The truth 
seems to me to be the opposite. There's a special region of experience which can be communicated without poetic language, namely its common measurable features. But most experience can't. Most experience isn't like this. To be incommunicable by scientific language is, so far as I can judge, the normal state of experience. The very essence of our life as conscious beings, therefore, consists of something which cannot be communicated except by hints and similes and metaphors and the use of the emotions which are pointed to it. So Lewis develops a sort of philosophy of language, being very interested in literature and language from an early age. He was fluent in a number of ancient languages. He says, you could put it like this, in other words, since the the scientific language that describes our, our measurable empirical experience in these precise quantitative terms, which can be tested by an instrument, tested out empirically, that since that's actually the exception to the general rule of ordinary language, it follows that scientific language cannot, on pain of self-contradiction, be used to undermine the meaningfulness of any statements in ordinary language or poetic language, including, of course, religious Statements, religious truth claims, attempts to communicate having a religious experience and so on, which the, the positivists wanted to say was literally meaningless. But Lewis says they're contradicting themselves in doing this because the kind of empirical language that they want to use as a criteria for things meaning anything itself depends upon our usage of language in the broader, more poetical sense that they're trying to sort of push out of the window. It's a fascinating uh, attack on logical positivism from a philosophy of language, and I've not seen it anywhere else, as I say. Um, Other philosophers rejected positivism for a whole host of reasons, including the fact that if you take the the, the statement of the rule about when language is meaningful, it doesn't actually pass itself. The rule of logical positivism as to when language is meaningful is neither true by definition nor something that you could check out empirically. So it's sort of cutting off the branch that it's sitting off. And Lewis's attack is also pointing out uh, a facet of self-contradiction uh, within logical positivism, but from his angle of his interest in the philosophy of language... So Lewis rejected positivism. He thought truth claims about um, ethics and aesthetics and God were meaningful, at least, even when he may have thought they were false. And he also rejected what's often been a sort of constant travelling companion of positivism, that is scientism. Not science, of course, but scientism. Uh, He says this, it's widely believed that scientific thought does put us in touch with reality, whereas moral or metaphysical thought doesn't. But the distinction thus made between the scientific and the non-scientific thoughts will not easily bear the weight that we're attempting to put on it. And you can see from his philosophy of language why he would say that. Uh, This stance allowed Lewis 
to take metaphysical, philosophical arguments for the existence of God seriously in a way that today's new atheists who, under the influence of a scientific view of knowledge, almost a positivistic view of meaning sometimes, um, don't take philosophical arguments with at all the seriousness with which uh, I think they should be taken. Uh, the new atheists, or the neo-atheists, sometimes they're called, they were dubbed the new atheists in an article in Wired magazine some years ago, uh, which summed up the sort of stance of the, the new atheist movement of people like uh, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett here, saying the new atheists condemn not just belief in God but respect for belief in God. Religion is not only wrong, that is an intellectually mistaken position, it's evil, and therefore to be fought against. There's no sense in which you can sort of say, well, I think you've made an intellectual mistake there, but hey, different strokes for different folks. Though the new atheists say, no, beliefs have consequences, and the consequences of religious belief are bad ones, and so we need to get rid of religion. And Oxford University, home to Lewis for so long, is the academic powerhouse of the new atheism. So here's a list of some of the, the most famous of today's neo-atheists. Uh, Peter Atkins, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, A.C. Grayling, uh, the recently deceased Christopher Hitchens. All of these people studied or associated with Oxford University. See, Daniel Dennett uh, did his Doctor of Philosophy under Gilbert Ryle, who was a colleague of Lewis's. Um, A.C. Grayling received his DPhil from C.S. Lewis's old college, Magdalen, under the supervision of another. P.F. Strawson, another ex-colleague of Lewis, and A.J. Eyre, the positivist. So it seems to me that today's new atheists are very much influenced by the sort of climate of positivistic, scientific thought um, that was uh, there at Oxford being promulgated by people like A.J. Eyre at the time when Lewis was at Oxford. This is only one sort of intellectual generation down the road, as it were. And that makes Lewis an obvious intellectual counterfoil to the new atheists. So it's partly under the influence of professors that Lewis rubbed shoulders with that today's Oxford-centric new atheist movement continue to espouse very similar, at least, views. The new atheists themselves acknowledge, in many places, Lewis as an influential Christian voice. Uh, Christopher Hitchens even calls Lewis the main chosen propaganda vehicle for Christianity in our time. And so you'd think if they recognise Lewis as the, the main sort of vehicle for communicating Christianity, that they'd owe him some engagement. Well, they give him some, um, but by no means uh, of the quality that he deserves. There's some direct engagement, but on the whole, you have to look for a sort of indirect engagement with Lewis's thought uh, by looking at what are their views on the relevant topics. 
And Lewis himself was led away from atheism and eventually towards Christ by a series of mainly philosophical arguments, most of which the new atheists ignore. They don't look at the reasons that Lewis would give for his change of mind. And I think that's because they have this sort of anti-philosophical bias. The difference between Lewis the atheist and today's new atheists is that Lewis, grounded in this classical philosophy, classical literature, ancient Greek thought, uh, the writings of David Hume and so on, he resisted uh, modernistic or scientific attempts to uh, ground meaning or knowledge in the empirical alone or empirical and just by definition. So let's look at a few of the reasons that, that moved Lewis from atheism eventually to Christianity and uh, try and put them in some sort of dialogue uh, where possible with the new atheists of today. This is A.C. Grayling putting his finger on the, the heart of the new atheist problem with religion in general. It says, faith is a stance or an attitude of belief independent of and characteristically in the countervailing face of evidence. It's non-rational at best and it's probably irrational given that it involves deliberate ignoring of evidence or commitment despite lack of evidence. Now, I don't know where A.C. Grayling gets his definition of faith from but it's certainly not from the Bible. And it's certainly not what C.S. Lewis would have understood by faith. Lewis is a great counterfoil to the uh, neo-atheist portrayal of what faith automatically means. Here's uh, Richard Dawkins again criticising faith as requiring blind trust in the absence or even in the teeth of evidence. I much prefer Lewis's explanation of faith, which I think is much more biblically grounded, Um, in religion and reality or substitute he says this faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods now that I'm a Christian says Lewis I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable but when I was an atheist I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable unless you teach your moods where to get off you can never be a sound Christian or even a sound atheist but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion when we exhort people to faith as a virtue something that A.C. Grayling in particular has criticised when we exhort people to faith as a virtue to the settled intention of continuing to believe certain things we are not exhorting them to fight against reason if we wish to be rational not now and then but constantly we must pray for the gift of faith for the power to go on believing not in the teeth of reason but in the teeth of lust and terror and jealousy and boredom and indifference 
that which reason, authority, or experience, or all three, have once delivered to us as truth. So let's look at some of those uh, reasons and experiences, and even in some cases uh, through the channels of certain authorities, how Lewis came to change his mind. It's a recurring theme, uh, obviously a very important, formative experience in Lewis's life, this experience of what he came in some places to call joy. He gives various discussions and definitions of it in a couple of different places, but he captures it quite well here in Surprised by Joy when he says it's an, 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 an unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. It's an experience of a lacking of something and yet it's such a precious experience that other experiences of being having desires fulfilled don't even seem to hold a candle to it as it were it says it's distinguished from other longings by two things other desires are felt as pleasures only if satisfaction is expected in the near future so hunger is pleasant only if we know or believe that we're soon going to eat gives the meal that much more relish but this desire even when there's no hope or possible satisfaction continues to be prized even preferred to other things in the world by those who've once felt it this hunger is better than other fullness this poverty better than all other wealth in the second place there's a peculiar mystery about the object of this desire inexperienced people suppose when they feel it that they know what they're desiring Thus, if it comes on a child when he's looking at a far-off hillside, he at once thinks, oh, if only I were there. If it comes when he's remembering some event in the past, he thinks, oh, if only I could go back to those days. But every one of these impressions is wrong, says Lewis. I know them to be wrong, not by intelligence, but by experience. For I myself have been deluded by every one of these false answers in turn and have contemplated each of them earnestly enough to discover the cheat yeah, Peter Crift there uh, picking up on this quote from mere Christianity about creatures not being born with innate desires unless there's a satisfaction for them that exists you know, of course you might desire to visit the land of Oz and of course that doesn't prove that the land of Oz exists but the desire for the land of Oz isn't innate. Uh, it won't be found in people who've never heard of that particular storybook. Uh, it won't be found in people in every culture, in every time, and so on. And Lewis argued that this profound sense of longing for something that the world just seems incapable of satisfying within us is such a, a, a transcultural, innate desire. If I find my, in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world, 
that has something within it that can satisfy this longing, this joy. You can put the argument in a couple of ways, and recent philosophers have articulated it in a number of ways. Very simply, like uh, Kreef did in that quote there, we could put this, premise one, every innate desire points to a corresponding object of satisfaction. Premise two, we have innate desires that only God, if he were to exist, would be capable of satisfying. Conclusion, therefore God exists. Some people have put it in a more sort of uh, existentialist mode, if you like. Um, unless every innate desire has a corresponding object of satisfaction, the universe is existentially absurd. We would, the universe would be playing some sort of great cosmic joke on us to inculcate such a desire without there being a satisfaction for it, as we find in every other instance of such desires. And so if you think the universe isn't existentially absurd and cruel and in that sort of uh, Camus kind of a way, then you think that there would be a corresponding object of satisfaction uh, to these uh, desires that uh, can be interpreted as being most plausibly desires that could only be fulfilled by things that God could offer to the human condition were God to exist and to be knowable indeed. And of course, Lewis points out, um, go back to the analogy of, you know, if there's hunger, that means there's food. Um, Lewis says, well, of course, that doesn't prove that I'll ever get any food. I might starve to death. But doesn't it at least point to the existence of edible things? Well, A.C. Grayling, in his... Uh, sort of parody of the Bible, if you like, the good book, a secular Bible. Um, he includes uh, this phrase, nature does, does nothing in vain. Um, you could take that as an endorsement of one of the premises of the argument from desire. Um, why would we have this innate desire for something that doesn't exist if nature does nothing in vain? Peter Atkins points out longing is not itself an adequate proof of the existence of what is longed for. Well, sure, but the argument from desire does depend on this crucial distinction between desires that are innate within human natures and desires that are not innate within human natures. And Atkins is simply failing to make that distinction. Um, the argument only works with the innate desires, not with the uninnate desires. Dawkins says the most on this kind of theme. He says it's often said that there's a God-shaped gap in the brain. Well, actually, it's a God-shaped gap in the whole that's usually mentioned in these discussions after Pascal. Um, as usual, Dawkins hasn't done a great deal of research into the thing he's talking about. Um, a God-shaped gap that needs to be filled. And Dawkins asks, well, could it be that God clutters up a gap that we'd be better off filling with something else? Science, perhaps. Art, human friendship, humanism... Love of this life in the real world, giving no credence to other lives beyond the grave. I think Lewis would reply that Dawkins' question is kind of ill-formed, because in his experience, it's in the very experience, the very appreciation of 
the things that this world has to offer, the satisfactions in the world around us, in our very appreciation of science or art or the, the box garden that his brother had made, it was these experiences that evoked within him this deeper desire for some transcendent, more, other, different from this thing that sparks the desire within me, And yet, my desire is clearly not the desire for the box garden or for science or whatever, because I've got the box garden. I've got the science. And yet, it it doesn't scratch the right itch, as it were. These things evoke this deeper desire, and so they cannot be the answer to it. Another argument that weighed heavily with Lewis as this continuing journey of kind of following the hour of desire that was sort of nagging at him alongside these things run parallel was something called the argument from reason um, particularly in discussion with friends of his and he was very influenced by reading a book by um, British Prime Minister Arthur Balfour who was also uh, a philosopher um, When we say, I believe X because of Y, as Lewis later explores, you could mean two different different things, says Lewis. Um, I believe X because of Y. On the one hand, you could be talking about a relation of physical cause and effect, as in, um, grandfather is ill today because, cause and effect sense of because, he ate lobster yesterday. And the lobster had gone off. That's the cause and effect sense of because. On the other hand, you can talk about the relation of logical ground and consequent belief. As in, grandfather must be ill because... Ground and effect sense, ground and consequent sense of because. Because he hasn't got up yet. And we know he is invariably an early riser when he's well. So because, in these two different senses, has two very different meanings. Now, grandpa's failure to get out of bed doesn't cause grandfather to be ill. Nor does it cause us to conclude that he is ill. Rather, uh, it's our, our logical grounds for arriving at the logical inference, the logically drawn conclusion that grandfather is ill. As the contemporary atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel observes, if we can reason, it is because our thoughts can obey the order of logical relations among propositions, amongst truth claims. Lewis, a train of reasoning has no value as a means to finding truth unless each step in the train of reasoning is connected with what went before in the ground-consequent relation, the ground-consequent sense of because. If what we think at the end of our reasoning is to be a valid conclusion, the correct answer to the question, why do you think that, must begin with the ground consequent, because... 
On the other hand, every event in nature must be connected with previous events in the cause and effect relation, if, particularly if nature is all there is. But if naturalism is true, our acts of thinking are, by definition, just events in nature. Therefore, the true answer to why do you think this must begin with the cause-effect. Because. Now, this is clearly a problem, because as Lewis says, to be caused is not to be proved. Wishful thinkings, prejudices, the delusions of madness could all be caused, cause and effect, but they're ungrounded. They're not rationally established. So you could put the argument like this. Premise one, a naturalistic worldview reduces reasoning to fit it into a closed, mechanistic, deterministic system of physical causes and effects. But premise two, this reduction of reason to the natural world is unable to accommodate what's actually valuable about acts of reasoning. Including, of course, the naturalists' own acts of reasoning. Conclusion, therefore naturalism is self-contradictory. And reason must be viewed as a fundamental cause. You can't uh, reduce reason to something else and explain rationality in terms of the irrational, the irrational. How do the new atheists deal with this argument? And it's an argument that is really alive within contemporary philosophy of religion. Um, uh, Alvin Plantinga, one of today's most noted philosophers of religion from Notre Dame, recently retired from Notre Dame in the US, uh, has a version of this argument in several of his works. He's been constantly defending and revising and debating it with atheists, including Daniel Dennett, fascinatingly. Um, And when Plantinga first proposed the argument, he noted in, in a footnote uh, in his book War- Warrant and Proper Function that this argument bore a relationship to C.S. Lewis's argument in his book Miracles. And indeed, there's a philosopher called Victor Reppert who's published a, a book called C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea, uh, which defends and teases out in, in sort of modern philosophical terminology um, this uh, drift of argument uh, from Lewis. Well, um, Richard Dawkins was recently on a book tour of America and the Christian philosopher Paul Copan asked Richard Dawkins a very good question that was basically asking Dawkins to deal with this uh, objection, this rationality objection to the entire naturalistic worldview. It's a good question and he says this. um, You say in Dawkins' book River Out of Eden that we're dancing to our DNA. It seems hard to differentiate between the arguments of the atheist who believes himself to be more rational than the theist uh, when actually the same non-rational physical genetic forces are at work in both, both the atheist and the theist. So that even if the atheist is correct, it seems to me that it would be completely by accident rather than by any virtue or rationality that the atheist has. So I was curious as to what you'd say in response to that. Uh, If the same forces are at work in both the atheist and the theist, 
why would we consider the atheist to be the more rational? Okay. Well, let me, uh, just to prove that I'm uh, not misquoting here, play you the audio clip of Dawkins' very illuminating uh, response uh, to this question. Okay, so, I don't know if you were able to follow all that, but to briefly review, um, Dawkins admits, I'm not quite sure I've got this, and then he makes a remark that makes it absolutely clear that he, he hasn't got this. So he, he's, he's never thought about this objection to his worldview before, I think that means. Um, he says, uh, the same forces are shaping both the atheist and the theist, and indeed everybody, that, yet we come to different conclusions. Is your problem, how is it that we come to different conclusions if our brains are shaped by the same forces? Well, that was clearly not the question. Um, and Copan you know, phrases his question in a third way uh, to try and clarify why should the atheist believe he's more rational than the theist if the same forces are at work in both of them, forces that are beyond their control. It's not up to them what they believe, if naturalism is true, he's suggesting. Dawkins, you could ask the same question about any difference of opinion. Well, of course you could. But so what? Come on, answer the question. <laughs> Just because you can ask the question about any difference of opinion, that's neither here nor there. Um, and then he changes the subject. To if you were to ask me why I'm confident that my scientific rationalism is... And I think there might be a bit of a... You might be reading too much into it here, but there is a sort of interesting stumble. Ask me why my scientific rationalism is... Uh, is, uh, is he, was he going to say... The rational, the more rational view is uh, the right answer. I mean, the answer is that it works. But of course, as Alvin Plantinga points out, okay, if our brains are, 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 there's nothing more to us than our brains, and our brains have been formed by a process of naturalistic evolution that only cares about what works, not about what's true, how much trust can you place in the deliverances of a system that's not even aimed at delivering truth to you it's only aimed at delivering things that work um, which is another way of getting into uh, the argument here so I think this response of Dawkins to Copan importantly shows that he's ignorant about a major contemporary philosophical criticism of the naturalistic worldview that he's not really thought it through before that he illegitimately conflates the naturalistic worldview with, with science. Well, it, it works, and that'll be the answer. And just sort of begs the question that Copan raised. And despite their constant moralising against the evils of religion, of course, and of course there are many evils of religion, under the influence of scientism, most, if not all, the new atheists, like the positivists of old, like A.J. Eyre, reject the objectivity of, of values and hence they don't mount you won't find the new atheists giving the problem of evil as an argument against God what they really do is point out examples of religious people doing evil things to get you to think oh I don't, I don't like that I don't want to associate with that I don't want that in my society but they're not using that as some sort of premise in an argument against the, the possibility of God's existence or whatever although I have seen Sam Harris do that as Lewis describes it on the, the scientific view that the world of facts without one trace of value and the world of feelings 
without one trace of truth or falsehood, justice or injustice, confront one another and no reproachment is possible. And at one stage Lewis says he felt in his life as if everything that he valued and that excited him and gave his life a sense of meaning and purpose, he thought to be illusory. And everything that he thought to be real uh, and knowable uh, was valueless and sort of colourless, as it were. It's widely believed that scientific thought does put us in touch with reality, whereas moral or metaphysical thought doesn't. On this view, when we say the universe is a space-time continuum, we're saying something about reality. Whereas if we say that men ought to receive a living wage, we're only describing our own subjective feelings. But for Lewis, of course, evil was an objective fact. A real thing, he says, a thing that's really there, not made up by ourselves. Lewis also believed that evil was something that any god worth the name objectively ought not to permit. Hence he refers to Lucretius's argument about had God designed the world, it would be a world not so frail and faulty as the world we see. As he says in the problem of pain, where he gives about as good a, a summary of the old logical problem of evil as it's uh, possible to come across, he says, not many years ago when I was an atheist, if anyone had asked me, why don't you believe in God, my reply would have run something like this. If you ask me to believe that this universe is the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I reply that the evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else a spirit indifferent to good and evil, or else an evil spirit. Uh, and some of Lewis's early poetry, he started out uh, trying to be a poet in life, reflects that sort of uh, view of man being crushed by the, the gods. My argument against God was this, said Lewis, that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he's some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak... Why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction to it? A man feels wet when he falls into water, because man's not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, like the new atheists say. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on my saying that the world really was unjust, not simply that it didn't happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, 
was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe, and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. Now, for the neo-atheists, evil may be a word without meaning. As Richard Dawkins says, there's no design, no purpose, no good, no evil, nothing but pitiless indifference. But for Lewis, the atheist, evil was a word that had meaning, and he wasn't prepared to give up on the meaningfulness of, of value judgments in order to escape believing in some kind of a transcendent goodness beyond the world. It's beginning to sound quite a light like, I don't know, that God fellow that people keep talking about, you know? So we have the argument from desire, Lewis being impelled to seek something that's going to satisfy this longing that nothing in the world around him seems to satisfy. And he wanted to criticise belief in God on the basis of values, but found that that's sort of like a boomerang. He throws this boomerang away at belief in God, he comes back at him saying, but how do you know anything's evil if there's no real standard of goodness? And where do you find that? If nature, the space-time-matter system, is the only thing in existence, then of course there can be no other source for our standards apart from nature. They must, like everything else, be the, the unintended and meaningless outcome of blind forces. All that we say about nature read in tooth and claw is quite inexplicable on the theory that we are simply natural creatures. If this world is the only world, how did we come to find its laws either so dreadful or so comic? If there's no straight line elsewhere, how did we discover that nature's line is crooked? And so we get... Part one of a two-part argument here. The first part of this argument is simply an argument against naturalism. If metaphysical naturalism is true, then nothing is objectively evil. But something is objectively evil. Therefore, metaphysical naturalism is false. But then... Lewis continues to follow the thread of the argument and it becomes, as the argument from reason can indeed, a positive reason for a belief in a personal God. You can put it like this way, if a wholly good personal God doesn't exist, then objective moral values can't exist, but objective moral values do exist. So a wholly good personal God exists. Lewis phrases it like this, the defiance of the good atheist hurled at an apparently ruthless and idiotic cosmos is really an unconscious homage to something in or behind that cosmos which he recognises as infinitely valuable and authoritative. For if mercy and justice were really only private whims of our own, of his own, he could not go on being indignant the fact that he arraigns heaven 
itself for disregarding them, these values, means that at some level of his mind he knows they are enthroned in a higher heaven still. Now, Lewis came to believe in a personal God, having transitioned through some kind of form of pantheism. And he famously records that he he knelt down in his rooms at college and admitted that God was God, that he was personal and could perhaps have some sort of relationship and and interference in his life, something that, that Lewis really didn't want, didn't desire this interfering busybody from outside as Lewis saw him but he gave in and admitted that he was driven by the cumulative force of these arguments and experiences to admit that there is a God and God is God but he didn't become a Christian for a number of years and it was principally I think under the um, influence of uh, reading G.K. Chesterton and talking with Christian friends particularly of course J.R.R. Tolkien Uh, the author of the Lord of the Rings uh, books, uh, that Lewis came to have an appreciation of Jesus as the self-revelation of this God that he had already come to believe in. Mm. Remember that quote we had earlier from Lewis saying that Christianity is, you know, Christ is made up out of the human heart just as much as Loki uh, is just as much as gods of pantheistic religions. Well, G.K. Chesterton passes on to Lewis this venerable argument that in more recent times come to be known as the lunatic liar lord argument, or sometimes presented as the lunatic liar lord or legend argument. Um, And he very memorably phrases it in this oft-quoted paragraph about a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said, given that you've looked that there's good historical evidence that he existed and said those kind of things, of course, wouldn't be a great moral teacher. You can't just dismiss Jesus as another great prophet or a good moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who said he was a poached egg, or he'd be the devil of hell, a lying, blaspheming con artist. You must take your choice. Either he was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. It was partly also through talking with Tolkien about the nature of myth, something that Tolkien was, of course, very interested in. Lewis had loved all these old pagan myths and realised that although he thought Christianity was just another myth, when he came to approach it as perhaps being true, didn't have the same attraction to him as these ancient pagan myths that he could just put on the shelf as, as not historical. And Tolkien talked to Lewis about viewing Christ as myth become fact, as Lewis then expressed it that it was God addressing humanity through our natural mode of uh, sort of being religious and poetic and so on. No less uh, poetic and mythic for being historical and true. 
uh, and fusing this. Remember I said about Lewis saying, you know, at one stage all, all he felt was sort of valuable and interesting was, was not real. And the real was not valuable or interesting. And he finds in the story of Christ something that, that fuses these two things together that allows him to, with intellectual integrity, embrace both of those sides of his character, as it were. The imaginative, mythic, poetic Lewis. But also the Lewis who wanted to follow the argument, the philosophical chain of logic, where it led. And to only believe in things because it was true, not because he happened to like it. He didn't like the idea that there was a God, but he was, felt he was forced to accept that there was. Now, this is an argument that the new atheists talk quite a lot about. Christopher Hitchens, in particular, he finds himself in agreement with Lewis. He says, as an admirer of Jefferson and Renan, and a strong non-admirer of Lewis... I am bound to say that Lewis is more honest here. In God is Not Great, Hitchens hails Lewis's argument as a stinging riposte, he says, to those who argue that Jesus may have been a great moral teacher without being divine, and writes that Lewis deserves some credit for accepting the logic and the morality of what is just stated. And in a 2009 interview, Hitchens said, so many times you come up against the Jefferson line, that Jesus may not have been divine, but that his morality was divine. No, it's a wicked doctrine if it isn't fed by the force of revelation. The stuff is, as Lewis quite rightly said, wicked gibberish. So he seems to be agreeing with Lewis about the logic, the structure of the argument there, at least, if not, of course, the conclusion that he would draw. But in God is Not Great, Hitchens also asserts that Lewis takes his two false alternatives, uh, the lunatic or the liar alternatives, as exclusive, uh, an exclusive antithesis, and then uses them to fashion a crude non-sequitur, that is a an argument where the conclusion doesn't really follow from the premises because basically he's accusing the, the argument of, of committing a false uh, dichotomy, a false dilemma, that there's another option uh, alongside saying that Jesus was either a lord or a lunatic or a liar given that he made those claims. He's saying there's a fourth option. But interestingly, he doesn't substantiate this charge in his book at all by elaborating any fourth option that we could choose other, I suppose, and he doesn't make this link explicitly uh, than if you were going to reject the, the historicity of any of those claims that the argument is based upon. Dawkins was also asked uh, by a journalist about this argument from Lewis. And the journalist asked him, when you read some of C.S. Lewis's work, say, um, a Christian communicator with a fertile mind, a great intellect, why do you think someone who's a scholar is grabbed by faith? Remember all the overtones that faith has for new atheists. And Dawkins says, well, you could pick a much better target than C.S. Lewis. He, after all, was a professor of English. 
although no doubt a very good one. It's a very subtle sort of ad hominem attack, sort of forgetting that Lewis studied greats and passed with the first and taught philosophy uh, at Oxford University for a while and continued to tutor in philosophy even as an English professor. Um, So after a bit of an ad hominem attack, he goes on and says, uh, but when you read some of his arguments, they're just pathetic. Things like, well, Jesus claimed to be the son of God, so either Jesus was mad or bad, or he really was the son of God. It did not seem to occur to Lewis that Jesus could simply be mistaken. Sincerely and honestly mistaken. I mean, what a pathetic argument. Okay? So Dawkins gives us a, a, a fourth option on the list. It's not that Jesus was Lord. It's not that he was uh, lying. And it's not that he was sincere but incorrect and therefore very, very out of touch with the reality of who he was, it's just that he was sincerely and honestly mistaken in thinking he was God. You know, sometimes I sincerely and honestly think I've uh, left my keys in one jacket when it's in the other. Uh, Jesus just sincerely and honestly thought he was God when he wasn't. Find this a plausible riposte to this pathetic argument from Lewis? Jesus could simply be mistaken. I love this riposte from uh, Nicky Gumbel of uh, the Alpha Course fame. And he says, The irony of the God delusion is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe there is a God. But Jesus was not deluded even though he thought he was God. (laughs) That doesn't square, does it? And so in... uh, in C.S. Lewis and the New Atheists um, out early next year uh, I look at uh, Lewis as an atheist and how in some senses his views chime very much with today's neo-atheists but how um, he had a different take on the approach to knowledge in particular, knowledge and, and meaning and philosophy which meant that he had to take seriously these philosophical arguments uh, primarily that moved him to believe uh, in God Uh, in a way that the new atheists conspicuously fail to take such philosophical arguments seriously to the extent that although they will say things like, you know, Lewis is this great representative of of theism uh, and the the apologist that we must sort of do down and so on they really don't bother to engage with his actual arguments uh, except indirectly Uh, and even when they do it directly as they do with this lunatic liar lord argument um, they really don't seem to handle it Uh, very convincingly to my eyes. Uh, Anyway, let me stop uh, rambling on there and leave uh, ten minutes for questions from you. I'm sorry it's taken so long uh, to go through stuff, but I hope I've given you a a real flavour of the man and his uh, movement in thought and its relation to to uh, debate about stuff. Yeah, sir. Do you think, um, I mean, you said that Hitchens didn't come up with the fourth option and... uh, Dawkins' fourth option is really kind of very petty repost. Mm. Philip Pullman has come up with this book, you know, The Good Man Jesus and the The, sc- the Scoundrel Christ, uh, yeah. Christ. Is that a realistic attempt by someone in a literary, literary mm. way to kind of separate out the, the myth from the, from the reality? I mean, I, you know, it's a book I've scanned read. Mm. I, I don't know what it is. Okay. So the question is about Philip. Pullman's book, um, The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ. Uh, 
uh, in which uh, Pullman retells the New Testament uh, gospel story um, but separates out um, the character of, of, of Jesus from a, a separate character who is uh, the Christ and it's, it's all to do with the, uh, the manipulation of Jesus' teachings in order to uh, have a religious uh, impact a sort of idea like there was Jesus and then you know, much later on his disciples completely misunderstood him and Paul founded Christianity you know, um, this kind of idea but it, it's hard to say to view that as a serious attempt at a sort of riposte to the kind of lunatic liar lord argument because he's, he's doing Andy Lewis doesn't he I mean, he's the, the oh, yeah. writing is that I am the antithesis of C.S. Yes, uh, the questioner points out that Pullman himself has defined himself in his writings as a sort of anti-Lewis, and particularly in, in his uh, trilogy of book, The Dark Materials uh, fantasy trilogy. Um, where, and I think some of his criticisms of Lewis is based on, on misunderstandings, but uh, certainly on this, the, the Scoundrel uh, Christ book, um, he's in no sense attempting to provide us with what he's going to argue is a serious historical reconstruction of what actually happened in history. He is simply reshaping what he would see as one untrue story, one myth, uh, and reshaping it in another mythic literary form, as it were. Although he's clearly intrigued by Jesus, and some of his retellings of Jesus' teachings are very nicely expressed and so on in the book. So you can even go to that book for some of the occasional Sunday morning reading um, to sort of get a paraphrase of some of the New Testament stories as well. Yeah. So. I've only recently begun with new atheists trying to figure them out. Mm. But with this lecture, really they're not new atheists. These arguments have been done down to the, well, we since C.S. Lewis and probably yes. longer. Would that be right that they really are just extending? Yes, yeah, so this, this is a very good question about saying these so-called new atheists, are they really not new at all, but actually very old-fashioned in a sense? If they're so influenced, as I'm arguing, by a, a stream of thought that was current in the early to mid-20th century... Uh, when Lewis was at Oxford, but which has part, since been abandoned by the majority of, of philosophers, whether atheist or theistic. Uh, and I think that hits the nail on the head, really. The new atheists are atheists that give other atheists headaches. You know, so, <laughs> uh, other atheists, uh, philosophers like uh, Thomas Nagel or Michael Roos, um, have uh, heavily criticised the new atheists. Um, for giving atheism a bad name because of their shoddy scholarship and lack of appreciation and understanding for the theology that they're meant to be attacking and for, for holding views that they don't want to push and for taking a tactical approach to the religion, uh, society, faith, science, etc. dialogue um, that they think is mis misguided as well. Um, so um, it's not that the new atheists have taken over from the old kind of atheist, or I suppose we could call them classical atheists, would be a better way of putting it, perhaps. Old sounds uh, derogatory. Um, so classical atheists are still um, flourishing today alongside the neo-atheists, and um, there's vitriolic uh, debate and discussion between these two camps. Uh, so, yeah. 
Uh, yes, sir, and then, yeah. Uh, do you know if, uh, say, CSRS have uh, studied uh, Pascal? Do I know if C.S. Lewis had studied Pascal? Um, off the top of my head, I'm afraid that I don't know. Um, certainly, you could think of Pascal's remarks about well, the, the, yeah, the, the heart having reasons that the head knows not of, and so on. And his more sort of existentialist kind of approach to faith does chime very much with Lewis's discussion of the, the argument from desire. Yes. Um, but... He, I don't know if Lewis had studied Pascal. It certainly doesn't draw on him explicitly in constructing that argument. Uh, anyway, yeah. The, the lady behind you, Hannah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry that uh, there was a problem I was saying in the toilet. I don't know if you talked about this. Maybe I'll take a little bit apart. Did they still, as Lewis, talk about the conception of Right, okay, the, 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 the conception or the virgin birth? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's a question about, did Lewis write anything about the, the, the conception of, of Christ, about the, the virgin birth, uh, and so on? Um, again, I find it hard to remember on the spot off the top of my head. If, I did, if he did, it would be in his book uh, on miracles, uh, probably, or you would certainly be able to apply um, his general line of thought from miracles to that. Uh, specific uh, question um, but Lewis doesn't do a great deal of going into what's called um, philosophical theology um, he does a, a brief discussion of um, how do we understand the nature of the Trinity uh, in one of the volumes of Mere Christianity um, but he's not a writer who really gets, sort of gets into the how do we conceive of the, the, the metaphysics of how Jesus is at one time both fully human and fully divine and so on he, he in this area takes a more sort of evidentialist approach and simply, simply argues that the data of history forces us to that model to that conclusion that's summarised in the great Christian creeds um, and since we've got good reason to think it is true um, maybe you could say well you don't have to worry all that much about well how is it true, it's much more important to know that that something is true than how it is um, so he, he's more concerned to argue that Christ is the revelation of God and that that's what the, the data of history po- points us to than to get into theological discussions about how yes okay, thank you Peter just, uh, my question is more like on the, on the book itself. Mm-hmm. More like, I just want to start by saying, I just, you know, your, your interest uh, in this area, I mean, uh, especially, I mean, evangelical interest in C.S. Lewis mm. uh, and his engagement, you know, kind of, there's a next year, I understand my brother's coming up with a, with a book on postmodernism, and I think it's only yeah. touching, as he says, well, uh, to, to ask you a question, right. like, uh, how did you get interested in C.S. Lewis' engagement? Okay, uh, a couple of things there. One, how did I get interested in C.S. Lewis myself, which I'll come back to because that would be a good way of, of ending. Um, also mentioning about Alistair McGrath writing a book about C.S. Lewis at the moment. He, he, McGrath is writing a biography of Lewis, and I think it's, it's uh, next year is the um, 
Lewis died in 1963, so it's the 50th uh, anniversary of Lewis's death next year. And uh, Alistair McGrath is bringing out a biography of Lewis, and I'm bringing out this book, and no doubt other people, other publishers, will be bringing out other Lewis books next year because of that, that anniversary. Indeed, Lewis died on the very same day that Aldous Huxley died and that uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And there's a fascinating book by uh, Peter Kreeft, the American Catholic philosopher we had a quick clip of, um, in which he puts C.S. Lewis and Aldous Huxley and JFK into a dialogue in purgatory about, about who is Jesus. Um, it's a very uh, readable dialogue form uh, book. How did I get into Lewis? Partly because when I was young, uh, my mother read to me uh, the Chronicles of Narnia books until I got so frustrated at the, the slow pace of delivery of the narrative that I wanted to take over. Uh, so Lewis really helped me to learn to read uh, as a child. But also then uh, my parents had some of the uh, more apologetic literature of Lewis on the bookshelf at home. And um, when I was sort of in secondary school and sixth form, I would uh, read um, mere Christianity and some of the essays of Lewis and so on uh, and he was certainly a big impetus behind my getting interested in the whole world of philosophy and apologetics and then uh, reading the authors that had influenced him like uh, going back to G.K. Chesterton's The Everlasting Man and Chesterton's Orthodoxy um, so um, I credit Lewis with a lot of my interest in, uh, in philosophy and apologetics and uh, fantasy fiction as well. Yeah. So, okay, thank you very much for your attention and for coming. Thank you.